Morning Twitter. I'm Stephanie McNeil, he's Hayes Brown, and this is now a Fiji Water Girl Stan account. Fiji Water Girl only. Now, if you don't know what she's talking about, here's a tweet from E! News. This woman holding Fiji water at the Golden Globes truly came to serve, and that is entirely correct. Now, uh, quick backstory for those of you who are not familiar with Fiji Girl and her oeuvre so far. Uh, <laughs> she showed up on the red carpets last night, and you could see her in a bunch of Getty Image photos just lurking behind the celebs, posing stealing the shots, and being overall amazing. Yeah, so there was multiple Fiji, Fiji water girls. I actually saw a Getty Image photo that pictured all of them. Mm -hmm. But the thing that people really grasped about this girl was every single photo, she's like smizing and Bam. serving looks, even like, and like finding her right angles, and she just... Finding the camera. Yeah, she just, she knows what she's doing, she's mm -hmm. got it, she's flaunting it, and we stand. Yeah, so speaking of though, so we have some Fiji water right here. Yeah, we hashtag not an ad. We drink Fiji water. Um, they don't sponsor us, but if you want to, sure, Fiji, give us a call. At I can DM. do it. Bam! Look at this. Find your camera. Find your looks. I'm actually really bad at posing and finding my <laughs> angles. I found that. My husband tells me that all the time. People on this show have given me that constructive criticism. So actually, I just want a master class from Fiji Water Girl. Yes, please. Teach us. Show us your ways, Fiji Girl. And if you're watching it, we don't know who this girl woman is yet. We mm. don't even know how old she is. So we don't really know if she is a girl or a woman. Um, so if you're watching, let us know. We would love to have you on the show. Slide please. into my DMs. I would be, I'd be totally about that. Okay, well now I guess we should talk about the actual celebrities. So here's a tweet from CNN. The Golden Globes were apolitical, except that moment Dick Cheney was likened to Satan. Wow. That was actually one of the moments of the Golden Globes last night that made me laugh out loud. Yeah, I didn't stay up for it. I didn't like start watching it really because I'm not a huge award show stan, but... I did the thing that I do every single award show where I get hyped to watch it. Mm -hmm. I watch until about 10.30, 11 o'clock, mm -hmm. and then I miss all of the big awards because <laughs> I'm just over it and I need to go to bed. Right, well, if you had an early bedtime like us, don't fear, because David Mack, BuzzFeed News Deputy Director of Breaking News, is here to tell us all about it. Hello, David. <laughs> Hi guys, I've had my Fiji water, so I'm ready to go. <laughs> David, you look so happy You're to be so here with us. You're so glad to be with us. <laughs> uh, it is my day off. Uh, I did stay up late watching these awards, but I am very happy to be with you guys. Sorry if my uh, face gave that away. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, David, for starters, this is all put together by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. As a foreign press, how did, in your opinion, Andy Samberg and Sandra Oh do as hosts? Uh, they did well. I mean, they were an odd pairing to begin with, right? They didn't have any kind of past comedy history together. Uh, it was certainly the tone of the show was a little bit more wholesome and friendly. Some of the jokes didn't land specifically, but uh, I think people liked them. There's a lot of you know goodwill towards them. People were willing them to do well. The best moment in the opening monologue came when Sandra Oh uh, made a joke about a crazy rich Asian, saying that it was the first film since Ghost in the Shell and Aloha to have an Asian lead. And of course, uh, the controversy about both of those films was that they didn't have Asian leads because they were whitewashed with uh, Scarlett Johansson and Emma Stone. Emma Stone, of course, was in the room uh, having been nominated for The Favourite. And when Sandra Oh made that joke and got a big laugh, you could hear Emma Stone uh, off camera in the room saying, I'm sorry. Uh, and that got another good laugh as well. 
That was so, so it was, funny. That I did see on Twitter, and that it was, was amazing. <laughs> that was so funny. Yeah, that was kind of my vibe of them as well. It was kind of like watching your friends who you've never really seen do something like this before get up there and you were like I was kind of nervous for them because they both just seem like really really likable people mm -hmm. and they definitely it was really cute too because at first I feel like they did it was a little awkward I think they both were a little nervous and as the show went on they kind of seemed to like enjoy it a lot more and I think yeah it was just a very it was very wholesome I think it's it like, was the Washington Post described it as sleepy but woke. And I feel like <laughs> that's how I feel right now on this Monday morning. Sleepy but woke. Here I am. So Sandra O oh also won. Is she our new queen? Is she the queen of 2019, 2018, whatever year it is now? January now. Uh, she's having a good year, that's fair to say. She became the first Asian woman in almost 40 years to win in the Best TV Actress Drama category, of course, for Killing Eve, a show which I personally, Hayes Brown, have been talking about for, I feel like, forever now. Why are you yelling uh, at me, David? I, did I doubt you ever? <laughs> you always doubt me. Uh, she, yeah, and she, of course she hosted, so it was a huge night for her. So were there any other memorable big surprises or big moments that people are really talking about? I feel like my timeline is mostly Sandra O. Oh. Obviously, we talked about that Christian Bale speech. Is there any other big stuff? I feel like the big takeaway this for me was that the, the awards were kind of spread out across uh, a bunch of films. Uh, Star is Born only won for Best Song for Shallow, and I feel like that was a bit of a surprise for me personally. The Hollywood Foreign Press has a sort of a bit of a reputation, unfair or not, for being kind of star fuckers, to use a word at this hour of the morning. Uh, they uh, basically love celebrities, and everyone assumed that Gaga would do very well here, that this was a film that was kind of made for the Hollywood Foreign Press. Weirdly, uh, no, they didn't. Gaga didn't win. Bradley didn't win. The film didn't win. Uh, it got beaten at every turn. Of course, Gaga lost to Glenn Close, an industry veteran who hasn't really won many awards in her career, and she was very emotional on stage. Uh, so that was a big takeaway for me. Also, just the, the fact that Bohemian Rhapsody and the film Green Book did really well. Uh, these are two kind of films that are very, like, kind of crowd-pleasing films, but maybe not as beloved by critics. Uh, and I think... Right now, the state of the race is pretty much open going into the Oscars. This We usually use the Globes as kind of a, a bellwether for what's coming up with the Oscars. And right now, it doesn't feel like we have any clear sense of what's going to win. Yeah, here's a tweet from our own Alana Bennett I want to highlight. She wrote, are you telling me Bohemian Rhapsody or Green Book might win Best Picture with a little sad cat there? Can you walk us through why people don't like these two films separately? Because there's issues surrounding both of them. Mm -hmm. There is. So I think the first one, Bohemian Rhapsody, as I said before, they're both kind of like a little bit on the generic side, perhaps arguably for some, some critics out there, some tooth makers. Uh, they are also, with Bohemian Rhapsody, of course, Brian Singer was the director that was originally, who filmed more than I think half of that film and had to leave in a bit of a scandal. He was kind of a, a mess and wasn't really uh, turning up to work. He also have, has a bunch of sexual assault allegations against him throughout his career from young men as well. Uh, and so that film was finished off by another director. And uh, so there's a bit of a controversy about that. And Rami Malek and the producers didn't even acknowledge him when they went on stage last night, so that was a bit awkward. Uh, Green Book as well, it was a film that when it came out at the festivals was sort of seen as quite a you know crowd-pleasing film. Everyone liked it. But as it went on, there was a bit of controversy. Uh, the family of the, the real man who uh, is featured in the film came out and said, we don't think this is very accurate. 
Uh, there was debate that the film wasn't sort of as racially sensitive as it was proclaiming to be. And of course, there was that whole controversy where uh, one of the stars, Viggo Mortensen, said the N-word uh, while promoting the film uh, because he was saying uh, he was saying it in the context of words that you can't say anymore uh, as a, that, that are now we've evolved beyond. So he wasn't using it as a slur, but he did say the word out loud and it caused a, a controversy for about a week or so. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting, and it's been interesting to try to see these, the reaction to these two films that actually won the most awards, yeah. and I, I, I didn't really expect them to win any Oscars, so it's kind of like, I don't know what's going to happen. Usually yeah. we know, I don't really know. It's a puzzlement. It is a puzzlement, but they probably are guaranteed at least both of them a nomination at this point now, having won uh, in their respective categories at the close. Mm. Well, good to know. Thanks, David. Thank you. Thanks, guys. I'm off back to bed. Good night. Good night. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> okay, so let's take you to the timeline. What were your thoughts on the winners last night? Let us know using the hashtag AMTDM. Personally, I say justice for Wakanda. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's the thing that we actually didn't mention is Black Panther got completely shut out last night. Which Nothing. Not, people Boo. aren't super happy about. At all. Okay, so updates on a very important story. Houston authorities announced on Sunday that they charged a suspect with the shooting of seven-year-old Jasmine Barnes. But while eyewitnesses describe the assailant as a white man, the man identified on Sunday is black, potentially upending the narrative surrounding the shooting. Here's a tweet from the New York Times. Stress can play a role in eyewitness cases of mistaken identity, experts said, and it could be a reason there was such conflicting accounts of the suspects in the shooting death of Jasmine Barnes. Well, joining us now is the author of that piece, New York Times reporter Sandra Garcia. Good morning, Sandra. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. So there was a pretty wide gap between how witnesses describe the shooter and the person who was actually arrested. Can you describe that? Um, so one of the young girl that was shot in a car, Jasmine Barnes, was seven. She was in a car with her three sisters and her mother. Uh, one of her sisters described the uh, person that shot her sister as a white man, blue eyes, thin, uh, was wearing a black hoodie. Uh, her mother did say that it was dark out at the time, and so that's all that she could see. Uh, but when the suspect uh, was arrested, he was a black man. Um, and that ends up happening because of stress from the event, the incident that caused such stress, such trauma that your brain is, it doesn't allow you to just create a full memory of what is happening um, because of how your body biologically responds to stress and trauma. Well, here's a question. Do we have any idea who the white person they actually described was and how it was that he became so ingrained in their minds that he was the person that they described when uh, talking about the shooting? So I did hear that there was a, a bystander, a white man that was a bystander that ran um, after the uh, red pickup truck. Uh, and there is a possibility that one of the young girls saw that man, but it hasn't been reported. It, we, we don't have that concretely. Um, and so that there is a possibility that this young girl, you know, has just seen her younger sister get shot and saw this man, and that's how her brain encoded the, the series of events. Um, what happens to your body is that it releases cortisol, which is a stress hormone, to allow you to sharply focus on what's happening. Um, and um, what cortisol does is, is like it gives you tunnel vision to keep you focused 
sharply focused and basically to keep you alive. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's possible that her memory, her brain created a snapshot of what happened. And that's what she reported back as her memory. But there, there are a lot of conflicting research and conflicting reports on how memory works during a traumatic event. And so it's not, it's to be taken lightly according to experts and criminologists. Yeah. And also I think we should point out that this is a child who just witnessed the most horrifying thing you could ever witness, I would think. And you, we don't know in a lot of times, even with all the research, how your brain will react in that kind of situation. The brain is such a complex thing. So A lot of people on Twitter were criticizing the cops and saying maybe we shouldn't trust eyewitness accounts. Uh, Do you think that that's something we should take away from this or do you think that people are getting the message wrong? I think um, according to criminologists I spoke to and experts, eyewitness accounts are the least reliable uh, form of evidence because of the way that your memory be contaminated or influenced by other things like how you view the world or who you speak to after uh, an event or or how you process um, that event, how your body biologically responds to it. It's all completely different from person to person, which makes memory extremely unreliable when it comes to, um, you know, putting convicting someone and, and saying that someone did something. Um, I don't know that the police could have gotten a better, you know, the the young girl, like you said, had just undergone a super traumatic event and she recounted her memory the best that she could. Um, I do think that eyewitness accounts are to be taken lightly because of how your memory can be contaminated. All right. Well, Sandra, thank you so much for joining us. That was actually really enlightening on how our brains actually function. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Okay, so later on, Steffi talks about Marie Kondo's new show, which people are obsessed with. But up next, we have fire tweets for you guys. I'm obsessed. Okay, so you guys have a lot of thoughts on the Golden Globes. Of course, everyone on Twitter has thoughts about Golden Globes, but I just wanted to highlight a tweet from Joe Lee who said, I have mixed feelings about the Globes. Ecstatic for Sandra Oh and Regina King, obviously. Not pleased that movies that glazed over the real stories won. Straight men still get rewarded for playing queer characters. Finally, Black Panther and Pose were robbed. Robbed! Robbed. Did I, did I say that right? Let me know how I did. I don't think I did a very good job, but I tried. Your emphasis was close. We'll work on this after the show. Okay, okay. All right, but we got but some... yeah, that was a good analysis. Yeah, I, mean, that, I think you kind of summed up how a lot of people are feeling. All right, we got some fire tweets for y'all. First up, we have C. Bam! Who tweeted, January to me is just a free trial month. The real 2019 starts in February. I, I think you just that. got last week as your free trial week. You got a seven-day like trial, <laughs> yeah, not 30. Yeah, now, now, you know, you're done. You gotta, you gotta start doing real life now. Oh. All right, Xander. I cannot believe I was ever 14 years old. It just doesn't seem like something I do. Au contraire, Xander, being 14 is very much my essence. I would believe that it'd be out of my, like, persona, except I have live journal to document that, which... Glad that's on lockdown. Yeah, I guess, Xander, like, you're really cool or something. My persona, I will always be, like, 13. I'll always be, like, the movie 8th grade. That, that was me. All right, Kira, you tweeted. Uh. 
forgot my voodoo doll, please put that bitch on the treadmill. Which I get that. That's a pretty funny mental image. I do 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 little little. <laughs> <laughs> or it just gets flung off into the wall, much like me on the. That would hurt. Okay, Dana. <laughs> I'm easily abused. If you pay me fifty dollars, I'll show up to your funeral, but stand really far away, holding a black umbrella, regardless of the weather, so that people think you died with a dark and interesting secret. I think you should charge more than that $50. is a deal. I would yeah. love. A, know your worth, Dana. I would love for someone to just be that person, just in the rain, especially if there's no rain. Can you imagine how mysterious it would be if someone is at your funeral in the sun, black funeral, just crying at a distance? Again, I feel like people would be like. Stephanie, is not that interesting. Like, what is going on? <laughs> but then they'd be curious. Okay, tweet of the day comes from Aw oh, Yeah, It's Ain. Ready? Oh, uh, yeah, it's Ain. <laughs> That's funny. When you're cutting wrapping paper and the scissors go, and not, oh, yeah, when you're like doing, uh, when you're doing Christmas presents, mm -hmm. it's like, Shh. oh, that glide is just like, it's poetry. But then sometimes it's, yeah, and it's all ruined. True fact, about, true fact about me and my kindergarten evaluation, the only thing I got a poor mark in was my cutting skills. <gasps> I'm very bad with scissors. Even the safety ones when you were oh, little? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, no. yeah. Horrible. <laughs> well, coming up, Hay sits down with the ladies behind a new web series called Mercy Mistress. But up next, we're going live from the district on day 17 of the shutdown. One step. So excited. <laughs> Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Paul McLeod. Hey, Paul. Hey, good morning. Happy day 17 of the government shutdown. Just kidding. Thank you. It sucks. Where do we stand now? <laughs> uh, basically where we stood on day 16 and 15 and 14 <laughs> and 13. Uh, we are headed nowhere. There is pretty much no sign that either side of this uh, gridlock is willing to uh, compromise or, or crack on their positions. So uh, we are, I mean, you know, it's just still going. No one has any idea how long this is going to go. I think most people expect it's weeks still. Jeez. Did we get, I know on Friday, which is the last time I paid attention to this mess, there was some chatter that, <laughs> you know, there was going to be some activity over the weekend. Did anything come out of that? It sounds like Meetings no. of someone, some people getting together, nothing? <laughs> Well, th there were meetings throughout the weekend. Uh, Mike Pence led some meetings. But th this is a problem. What can Mike Pence do? Mike <laughs> Pence has already negotiated spending bills, and then Trump has turned around and said, eh, I'm not going to sign that. I'm gonna, I wanted to go a totally different direction. And now Democrats are so bitter by that that they're basically saying, why are we negotiating with Mike Pence? Why are we negotiating with anyone in Congress who claims to be speaking on behalf of the president, and then the president will come around and say something totally different? So... No, I mean, you know, there were meetings, by all counts, there was no progress made from them, and, you know, we're kind of just spinning our wheels here. Woof. Ooh, fun. Well, speaking of the president, he tweeted this morning, Congressman Adam Smith, the new chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, just stated, quote, yes, there is a provision in law that says a president can declare an emergency. It's been done a number of times, end quote. No doubt... But let's get our deal done in Congress. Okay, Paul, I feel like there's something missing. There are some <laughs> crucial details left out of this tweet. What is going on here? Oh, a little. 
Yeah, a little context uh, snipped out there. Just I guess uh, the character limit, the character limit didn't leave him room <laughs> to put in the rest of the quote, which was that, yes, presidents have used this authority, but it's been done in places like Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, and it would be a, ter- the, the congressman's saying it would be a terrible idea and legally dubious if the president were to use this for a border wall. And, and that is basically the position Democrats are taking that, I mean, you know, maybe the president could do that, declare an emergency. Obviously, <laughs> that's, that would be a strange case to make, considering that this is a persistent issue. You know, the, the situation has been steady and that Congress has, you know, negotiated deals that uh, have steady levels of funding. To make the case that there is some sort of emergency would be... Uh, odd, I guess you could say, and certainly would be legally challenged. I'm not a lawyer, of course, so I don't know how successful they would be. But so far, it doesn't look like that is going to happen. Although, I actually shouldn't say that. Trump has hinted that he might use these powers, but I think there are some people in the administration trying to steer him away from that and saying, look, no, 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 let's just negotiate. Uh, we're, going into, we're going into some uncharted territory if we try to use these emergency powers. What, is, what exactly would that mean? Are we talking right. a state of emergency like when a huge natural disaster happens? I was kind of confused reading <laughs> that tweet, what he exactly was talking about and what that would mean in the case of the border. Yeah, and the wall. What? Yeah. Qua? Yeah, so uh, the president has some uh, discretionary powers for exactly. So essentially, it's like in a case of an emergency where you don't have time to recall Congress and authorize new spending, the president can divert, say, uh, in this case would be defense spending. Uh, You know, that's exactly it. Like something like Hurricane Katrina would be a perfect example of a president using these powers, using it to build a wall. I mean, there's no no event that is sparking an emergency there. So it isn't entirely clear whether the president would be able to get away with it. But in theory, I mean, he has that power. So basically we don't know what it would mean, so we just get to sit back and watch. Perfect. Good times. Well, here's a tweet. Hey, welcome to my everyday. (laughs) Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. The government shutdown is life and death for low-wage subcontractors who likely won't be repaid for lost time. Paul, what? Why, Why not? Why won't these guys get their money? Yeah, so this is this is the thing. I mean, I, a lot of people, because this is only a partial government shutdown, uh, are not affected. People aren't thinking it's that big a deal, and and that's fair. It's not as big a deal as past government shutdowns because, uh, like something like two thirds to three quarters of the government has already been funded through appropriations bills. But that still leaves one quarter to one third of the government that is not. And yeah, generally, government employees who are not drawing a salary, there's about 800,000 of them not drawing a salary, traditionally what has happened is they will get their back pay eventually. Not to say that isn't a hardship on them right now, but they will eventually get that money. That is not true for everyone. You also have a lot of people, and I mean, these are not people who are making huge salaries here. We're talking about janitorial workers, people working in cafeterias. Often that is contracted out. So you would have, I don't know, like Sodexo, say, you know, these big catering companies that would run these cafeterias in a museum or an office building. And they are... I mean, they're almost certainly not going to get back pay. So these are people who are not drawing salary now and will probably just lose out on that income. And it's, I mean, as you can imagine, extremely difficult for people. Yeah, I mean, the story said is a life or death situation. And one of the big... One of the big group of government employees who keep making the news is the TSA because the TSA 
a lot of the workers are yeah. calling in sick. They're not coming to work because they need to go get another job. I don't know what they can do. Drive for Uber. I don't know. Um, what are, who are some other people? You mentioned cafeteria workers. Who are some people who might not be being talked about who are losing out on pay right now? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's actually dozens of agencies. I think it's nine federal departments and dozens of agencies that are affected. So, I mean, it's everything. There are, there are uh, uh, museums and parks that are shut down. TSA is uh, one of the big ones. And also, by the way, I keep wondering, where are the unions on this? Because it seems to me that if every TSA officer were to just say, you know what, we're going on strike, guess what, travel in and out of the country is shut down because we're not going to work, then that would cause a, a good amount of urgency for the politicians to get their act together and get a deal done pretty quickly. And that hasn't happened yet, and I think that's something to watch. It's like, at a certain point, are these workers going to put their foot down and say, no, 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 we are not showing up to work, deal with it. I hope it's right before my flight next Friday. Oh, <laughs> so, so, Paul, do you see that being like the cure for this shutdown, that uh, the, the actual irony of Trump shutting down the country to protect the people and then p making it so that the people who protect the country can't get paid, is that what's going to like really get this done finally? It could be. I, I really think it could be. I, I, I can't say it will because, I mean, you know, labor unions have been really weakened in this country and also there's just been no sign that they're willing to take that step, which would, in fairness, be a very drastic step to take. Uh, so barring that happening, we are just sitting here waiting for a breakthrough in negotiations. And I think that's what the approach everyone is taking is, all right, these things have happened before. Usually it takes a few weeks and it'll work itself out. There'll be a deal and we'll wait it out. But maybe this is not the case. I can't see Nancy Pelosi breaking anytime soon. I can't see Donald Trump breaking anytime soon. If this stretches into weeks, if this stretches into months, okay, well then we're starting talking about drastic action need to be taken. But I don't think that would happen anytime immediately. Certainly for the next few weeks, we're probably, everyone's probably just gonna sit around and wait for the politicians to sort it out and hope they come to some sort of deal. Well, we'll be hoping here. Thank you so much, Paul. All right, good talking with him. Have a good one. Okay, so up next, I sit down with Margaret Cho, Papi Liu, and Yin Chuan about the new show, Mercy Mistress. Stick around, guys. Hey, everyone, welcome back. This is The Sit Down. I'm here with Margaret Cho, Papi Liu, and Yin Q, the ladies behind a new web series called Mercy Mistress. Good morning to all of you. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, so it's Monday morning. Uh, before we get into your show, let's talk real quick. Golden Globes. Can I get a quick reaction, oh. you guys? How was that for everyone here? It's incredible. You know, I mean, I think uh, with Sandra, it, which is so, I mean, this is kind of like, um, the, you know, making history again as the first Asian woman to, to win the Golden Globes and to do it twice. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really impressive and and also hosting right you know it was really fabulous I mean I was disappointed because I thought crazy rich Asians was gonna take it I mean who among us didn't think that I, <laughs> I was really hoping and but you know in in a sense you know Sandra was really I mean to me that was like the victory the takeaway mm -hmm. which was really really exciting we were just talking about this actually coming over here that like it still feels like a very white situation mm -hmm. you know and I think even with all of the excitement this last year with like where we're pushing the conversation, mm -hmm. when you look at award ceremonies, I think like there's still like a couple steps behind still, mm -hmm. you know, so. And I really thought Black Panther 
This, and that that was also This is so much commiseration happening right now. I, yeah, I mean that that was the big shock. Mm -hmm. You know that that for I mean for all that it did I, I don't know why I, it maybe are people thinking that it came out too early or you know that's one yeah, thing right. but like things that come out like it's almost like the things that come out more recently get the bigger push. Mm -hmm. But um, Hollywood Foreign Press always leans more towards a kind of a mainstream decision of like who wins, you know, it's not necessarily always a predictor of the Oscars. So so just knowing that about the the this entity. Whole thing. Yeah. 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 But Black Panther, I, I, I thought that would take it too. So it's very, very strange. It also makes me think that I think <clears throat> in general, like as people of color, as queer people of color, mm -hmm. making media, making films, there has to be other measuring sticks that we measure our own success by. Right. Because if we measure our success by like how like our white predecessors have measured their success in the industry, it's not gonna be the same. But also it's sort of like why do we want the same kind of accolades mm. that like they want? Like are we trying to just like we're not we're not trying to get what is Loretta J. Ross's thing that she says? Um Equality is not about having like the same rights that your oppressors have mm. or to be able to oppress the same way that they do. Right. But to like form a new space. And that's like a dramatic way of talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. But Look, like, we're all like, like in the got, discourse. We're all like, we've been all, we've been all reading the think pieces. So yeah, I'm with you. It got so deep real quick. Right. So let's talk about this show really quickly. Uh, Mercy Mistress is based on Yin Q's memoir and her life as a dominatrix. Now, so. While it might be a little early for people uh, watching this, let's get <laughs> right into it. What is BDSM and how were you first introduced to it? Sure, BDSM is engaging in an erotic play, not always um, within focused on erotic, um, but in a playful manner that deals with uh, bondage, discipline, sadomasochism, or with um, BDSM can also stand for bottom, uh, dominant, mm -hmm. and submissive, and master. Mm -hmm. So these ideas of power dynamics, um, physical dynamics that are beyond uh, what we call like the vanilla norm yeah. of, of eroticism. So what decided to make you go pro, I guess, to become a professional dominatrix? Sure. Uh, well, it was in my blood. Mm. Um, I have to say that uh, upon sexual awakening, I was never someone to think of like the very soft, romantic mm. way of, of seduction. Um, I really loved bruises. I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to like hold, hold someone by the throat. Mm -hmm. I really loved to you know wrestle someone down and um, and be the one on the bottom too, being pinned down. Mm. Get uh, those candles out right. of here unless they're for the wax. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, but what what was. You know what was needed in my life was to find the rules, mm. right? Because if you're just going out and slapping someone in the middle right. of sex, <laughs> that's not. First of all, it's not consensual, and then it's also not sexy, mm -hmm. and it becomes dangerous um, for both both parties involved. So therefore, I needed to find the rules of BDSM, which is really based on consent. Mm -hmm. It's really based on trust. It's based on negotiations that happen be before the actual activity occurs so that both parties can go into it um, in a way that they're engaging with a very sane um, and also profoundly transformative effect mm. that can happen. Margaret, you were executive, you executive produced Mercy Mistress. Why did you want to get involved with this project? What, drew, what made it so that you wanted to like jump on board? Well, I um, come from San Francisco, <laughs> uh, 90s, trying to figure out how we're gonna have sex 
after the, the, the age of age. Mm -hmm. And you know, the way that um, sexuality was, like when I was like a, a young adult in San Francisco in the 90s, like mm -hmm. I was working for um, Stormy Leather, with, which at that point was um, a lesbian BDSM collective. And so I was helping them like, you know, make leather dildos for the masses and <laughs> try, to, try to help them like introduce leather to straight people and mm -hmm. introduce leather to, to, to everyone. And, and so I'm always looking for, as a producer, projects that really expand my worldview. And this thing was just perfect. I mean, um, to talk about queer Asian American sexuality in a way that was incredibly provocative and unique and exciting, but also true to life. Like it's not going to be Fifty Shades of Grey, which Bang. I appreciate. I, I like it because it makes all the straight people go, oh, let, let's see what this is about. <laughs> and then, you know, it expands their worldview in a way that I think is really impressive. But this is the real deal. Right. You know, this is like real stuff. And what's so great, it is the actual like antithesis of rape culture. Mm. You know, what this is all about consent, where the um, submissive really is, is the driving force right. behind everything. Mm -hmm. Now, Poppy, you play Yin in Mercy Mistress. What does it mean to you to represent Asian sexuality in this way, in a way that we haven't really seen depicted on screen before? Mm, yeah. Oh, I love Yin so much. It's like, <laughs> it's a really special thing to be able to play someone who you like, love and care about. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what's really interesting is, um, this is, like, this is a character who really owns her own sexuality mm -hmm. and is not saying, as a Asian woman who has been historically fetishized, exotified, right. uh, eroticized, et cetera, that for me to reclaim my power, I'm gonna get rid of my sexuality. Mm. It's actually that I'm gonna use it and that's my power. And I'm gonna amplify it actually, but it's gonna be on my own terms. And it's using my own language. It's using my own discourse. I set the rules for the space. And you may be watching my body and you may be consuming it, but it's on my terms. And that's amazing and mm. that's so powerful. Now, Margaret. What Asian femme stereotypes do you hope Mercy Mistress will shatter? Because I feel like there's many. Well, I think like the main one is like Dragon Lady. Like I, uh. which I, think I, really love. <laughs> I love a Dragon Lady. I do personally. too. But it's also I like, know so many. Yeah, All my aunties. It's perfect. But it's like the one way like we as Asian women have been able to have agency and control right. of the narrative that we have to like you know assume these tropes like Dragon Lady, like. Um, the, the lotus blossom. Lotus blossom, like mm -hmm. delicate flower, which I think, you know, to play with those stereotypes in a way that's eroticized and ha having fun for us, yeah. I think that's the most powerful piece of this, you know, which is so great. Mm -hmm. And you do it so beautifully. So that's mm -hmm. really fun. Well, Margaret Cho, Papi Vio, Yin Q, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a great talk with you guys. Thank you. Mercy Mistress premieres today on YouTube. Stay tuned for more AM to DM. Called Jane Austen, who has a great Twitter handle, tweeted, Netflix should add the category, sorry, there are no more episodes of Bake Off or Queer Eye. You're clearly going through some stuff. Here are some other soothing shows with people being nice to each other over low stakes things. So true, and a new show that perfectly fits that description is Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. And Jen Cheney, TV critic for Vulture, joins me now to discuss this very pleasing and soothing show. Jen, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. And I love the photos in the background that you're looking at, that I'm looking at right now. <laughs> very nice. Thank you. 
So you wrote, tidying up with Marie Kondo isn't life-changing, but it is surprisingly watchable. So if people are not familiar, can you run through the show a little bit? And why do you say it's surprisingly watchable? Sure. Well, this is based on sort of the book that Marie Kondo wrote three or four years ago, Tidying Up with Marie Kondo, that really kind of launched her as, as a figure within the cultural consciousness. And the idea behind what she does is she helps people figure out how to declutter, but she does it in a very mindful and spiritual way where you go through your belongings in different categories, whether it's clothing or books and you look at each item and you decide whether or not it sparks joy for you. And if it does, then you keep it. And if it doesn't, then you say goodbye to it and you put it in a pile with other things that you're going to donate. And you continue going through that process until you've finally gotten your, your house or your apartment in, in better order. And the reason I wasn't sure how this would work as a TV show, because the concept of watching people clean their house it doesn't really sound like the most exciting thing to watch. Like I can barely motivate myself to do it in my own home. So watching other people, I just wasn't sure how that would be. But it is, it's not only soothing, I think it's an actually very inspiring show in that to the degree that you can in like a half hour show, I think it makes it very clear that this is a process that is not overnight. It takes time, it takes weeks, it takes months for people to really go through things and decide what to keep and what not to keep. And I think that really distinguishes it from other like home makeover shows, for example, like trading spaces where they specifically, you know, change a room in a house in like a day or two, which I, I always found to be um, completely unrealistic. This feels like something that you could conceivably do after you watch an episode. Yeah, definitely. It definitely, I mean, I, I have to disagree with you just because I love organization and cleaning. So watching someone take a mess, I feel like is very good for my brain. It's very soothing for me. Do you, have you seen, or were you inspired to do some organizing or do you think it's going to inspire people to be more organizational? I think it already has. I mean, first of all, I will confess that I'm a total mess. Uh, if Marie Kondo came in my house, I, I really believe that her head would explode if she opened some doors to some of the rooms uh, where I keep a lot of stuff. But I honestly, after watching a few episodes, I started doing that KonMari folding that she talks about where you fold your clothes in a certain way and you actually stack them instead of piling them on top of each other in a drawer. And it just makes so much more sense. You can actually see your shirts. Uh, if you open a drawer in your kitchen, you can see the items that are in there. Uh, and I have actually seen some other people that I know on social media doing the exact same thing. So I do think it's it really has inspired some people to to follow what she's talking about in the show. Oh, I know that that folding was just so like I was like crack. I was like I can't stop watching the folding. <laughs> so one of the shows that we mentioned in the intro that immediately this show reminded me of was Queer Eye. As just a very nice like it's almost like a like a shot of dopamine to the brain. Like it just made me feel good. Is that kind of what Netflix is leaning into? Is that what people need to see right now? You think? Well, yeah, I mean, I talked about that in my review, too. It reminded me of Queer Eye as well um, for a couple of reasons. It is, I think, a, a soothing and positive show, to your point. Uh, I also think they made a very uh, distinct choice in terms of who Marie Kondo works with in each episode. They, they have chosen people of various backgrounds uh, in various situations. You've got gay couples. You've got straight couples. You've got Asian Americans. You've got African Americans. You've got a woman who recently lost her husband. So people in all kinds of different situations. 
in a way that makes it relatable to all kinds of people. And, you know, that's what Queer Eye did as well. And I think Netflix is smart in that way in that it, it, it does make it relatable. But you also think from a business perspective, I mean, Netflix goes out all over the world. So every time they can do something and make it speak to as many different audiences as possible, that's just kind of better for their bottom line too. For sure, Jen. Well, I'm about to go to the container store and buy a bunch of things to organize. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Up next, Hayes is going to talk to Anne Helen Peterson about how millennials became the burnout generation. Welcome back. Here's a tweet from me. I finished reading How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation, closed the browser on my phone, and immediately thought about what was next on my to-do list tonight. And Helen Pearson touched on something real and deep in this mediation on why we are all so tired. And Helen joins us now to talk about her piece. Good morning, Anne Helen. Hi. Hi. It is so early there right now. So really, thank you. <laughs> oh, it's like, it's not that early. It's like 8.50 or something so like that. So early. <laughs> the, sun, the sun just rose. I'm not even kidding. Okay. So many people on the timeline this weekend were sharing this. So let's start off here. What do you mean when you talk about burnout? So burnout, the way that I had thought burnout was figured was like, oh, it's something that like, if I go to the beach for, you know, four days and turn off my internet and delete Facebook or Slack from my phone, then I'll come back and burnout will be over. And I think that what happened is I just started to think much more holistically about what burnout is. And maybe that it's like the base temperature of many millennials lives. And that led me like, it's just living under millennialism. And I mean that by like living with student debt, um, living with working all the time, like all the conditions that just make up our daily lives. Why do you think this problem is so acute in our generation? As someone born in 87, I'm pretty squared, like in the middle of the millennial demographic. Yeah, so I am what's called an old millennial. I was born in 1981. I'm like at the very end. But I do think it's smudgy. Like some people say millennials are 1981 to 1996, but I've had lots of young Gen Xers tell me that like this very much describes how they feel about their lives. I think that it's two things, two major things. One is um, entering the job force during economic crisis Mm -hmm. and just always lacking job security or job benefits or anything that makes us feel secure in our employment and our everyday lives. And then the other thing is just this idea of total optimization of our lives. And this begins sometimes when we are kids and our parents institute things that they don't think of maybe as optimization, but are more like, how do we get this kid into college? And then continues once we graduate when we're trying to make ourselves into the best workers possible, which kind of means working all the time. Yeah. So you looked at some of the things millennials have killed as evidence for our burnout. What are they? And you know, what do they tell us about who we are as a generation? Yeah. So like the the stereotype is like, oh, millennials, they're so snobby and like they don't have any respect for tradition. And so they kill things like diamonds. Like we're not giving diamonds for um, to get married. And if you think about it, like the reason we're not using diamonds or like we're killing the diamond industry is because we're either delaying or avoiding marriage mm-hmm. um, in part because like that's something that happens when you have security or that you when you are 
feeling like you're secure. And also like specifically diamonds, you're supposed to save up traditionally three months salary. Like who do you know who can save up three months salary in order to purchase a diamond? Like that requires a sort of stability that is just so absent from most of our lives. Right. We're trying to save up three months salary in case we get laid off. And yes. even that's like a dream. Imagine having three months salary in your savings deposit. <laughs> what? Who? Well, something that, something that spoke to me is the inability to turn off in today's work environment, you know, with your phone and Slack and everything. Uh, what do you think this may mean for Generation Z underneath of us? I actually think that they are better at it, or at least some of them. Uh, you know, I think sometimes you see with the generation above you, like how they are performing. You're like, I don't want to, you define yourself by what you, they are. You say like, I'm not going to be that. Mm -hmm. And so whether this is like working all the time or like just tolerance for things like, Oh, like my life is marked by school shootings every two weeks. You know what I mean? Like the Parkland kids, I think are a great example of this in, in so much as they like, well, no, we're not going to say this is just the status quo. Like we want to do something about this. Um, but then as far as like as social media all the time, I think there's a lot of anxiety that like teens right now, they can't be without their phones. But at the same time, they also like a lot of schools have instituted you know, phoneless policies for the duration, like while kids are in schools. So this is something that actually is happening in France. And I think that maybe there is just like more hygiene. That's a weird word, but like just trying to figure out uh, the marks of like when I am online and when I am not, which is again, totally absent from our lives. Okay, real quick, I would be remiss if I didn't bring this up. Tiana Clark had a critique of the piece tweeting, when talking about the dominant millennial condition, regardless of class or race or location, well, that just seems dangerous. For me, black and brown burnout are different, especially when coupled with factors like toggling scarcity mentality and fighting systemic racism. And you responded, acknowledging her point, you said, Having a beginning vocabulary means that we can really start to expand it and the conversation around burnout to address more than the white middle class parameters commonly associated with this. So where else would you like to see this conversation go? You know, I've had a lot of people email me and talk about how they say like, oh, yes, thank you for articulating burnout. But here is how it's even different for me or more acute for me as a person who's disabled or a person who is a child of first generation immigrants or a person who covers the Trump administration really closely. You know, like there are different types of burnout that according to vocation, according to race, according to um, uh, class especially. And I think that like, you know, this was in, designed as a personal essay that gestured towards a more universally felt thing. But I just wanted to create an umbrella that hopefully you know, we can have so many more essays and so many more conversations about how this affects different people. Right. Your essay is the floor, not the ceiling for what burnout yes. is. Yes. All right. Well, and Helen, thank you so much for adding us to your to-do list for the day. <laughs> really <laughs> talking to you. Thank you. All right. Up next, we are reading your tweets. So stick around, everybody. thoughts on the Golden Globes last night and CD Martinez says Sandra Oh is the queen of everything Killing Eve is that show okay Sydney and I were talking a little bit on Twitter mm -hmm. and I definitely know I need to start Killing Eve we've been talking about it for like a year oh god you too I need to start it 
but That's I haven't David started Nathan. it yet. I know this is easily Googleable, but it's not Netflix. It's on Hulu. It? It's on Hulu. It's on Hulu. It was on BBC America. It is on Hulu now. It is on my like many many shows long list, but it's moving up in the world. So gotta watch it. I soon. told Hayes that I get my most TV watching done on the treadmill. Mm. So I'm I'm anticipating I need a new show for the treadmills. Maybe that'll be my new treadmill show. Nice. Kristen, ba Kirsten Baptiste, sorry, had this to say about the government shutdown. Exactly, that's what I said. All of TSA needs to be like, we ain't coming, bye. Yeah, that's a, I was actually just thinking about our conversation we were having with Paul on the break, I was just searching TSA. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are tweeting that they're going, like asking TSA workers, you know, as they're standing in line or whatever, like, oh, are you getting paid for this? And they're saying no. I mean, I think that has to be the straw that's gonna break the camel's back because right. I, I don't, I mean, it would just be such a weird thing to show up to work and know you weren't getting paid. And being asked every day, all day. So, uh, how's it going? Are you doing okay? Are you getting paid right now? And to answer no all day, every day? Yeah, and nice. it, it's like, I totally understand. It's like, I understand why people would still show up because mm -hmm. like, you don't want to be the guy who doesn't show up, but like, what a horrible position to be in. Like, no one wants to work for free. Nobody. Like, I wouldn't show up here if I wasn't getting paid. No offense, everyone. No offense, everybody. <laughs> We're on one today. It's yeah. Monday. <laughs> and Joe Lee tweeted, the conversation about Mercy Mistress is incredible. Yes, sex positivity. Yes, rewriting narratives. Yes, Asian excellence. And yes, queer affirmation. Yeah, uh, that was really cool. That I, was great. <laughs> I, I didn't know a lot about the show before you started talking to them and I learned a lot. It was very interesting. Right? They are phenomenal. And speaking of, thank you to all of our guests today. David Mack, Sandra Garcia, Paul McLeod, Margaret Cho, Poppy Leo, Yin Q, Jen Cheney, and Anne Helen Peterson. And we will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. So tune in. More fun. More fun with us. <laughs> See you guys then.